welcome to this episode of Want to Hear Something Interesting, a podcast where your hosts Scott Ahern and Chad Knight discuss a topic using research and personal opinion. The topics will be wide and varied, but approached with the researcher's eye. Will everything we say be 100% accurate? Probably not, but we are striving to be as accurate as we can be. Every month on the 1st, a new topic will come your way. Occasionally, though not usually, there may be some language of the adult variety. Listener, be warned. Now, here are your hosts, Scott and Chad. Hello, and welcome to Want to Hear Something Interesting, Episode 7. I'm Scott Ahern, here with Chad Knight. Hey, how's it going? And today, we just want to say, ooh, ooh, eek! Scott, what are you doing? Well, this episode is all about monkeys and trials, right? I just wanted to welcome any of our Simeon fans who may be listening. I wanted to start off with a landmark Supreme Court case called the Silver Springs Monkey Trial, which for the first time established rights for lab Scott, animals. Scott, this episode isn't about monkeys. It's not? No, it's about the monkey trial. That's what I'm talking about. This particular trial started in 1985 no, 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 undercover. No, 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 no. We're talking about the trial from 1925 in Dayton, Tennessee. Chad. Monkeys aren't indigenous to Tennessee. No, Scott. This was called the monkey trial because it was related to the teaching of evolution, specifically Darwin's assertion that man was related to apes and monkeys. Oh, you're talking about Tennessee versus John Thomas Scopes, the high school biology teacher who deliberately taught evolution in his classroom after Tennessee passed the Butler Law, specifically prohibiting such actions, even though evolution was in the Tennessee state-approved high school biology textbooks. That's the one. In fact, I've learned quite a bit about that trial. Well, then, please, share with us what you've learned. Absolutely. I'm going to kick off here today, after our little uh, mock little show there, with an article I found on History.com, and it talks at a high level about the Scopes Monkey Trial. So in Dayton, Tennessee, the so-called monkey trial begins with John Thomas Scopes, a young high school science teacher accused of teaching evolution in violation of a Tennessee state law. The law, which had been passed in March, made it a misdemeanor punishable by fine to teach any theory that denies the story of the divine creation of man as taught in the Bible, and to teach instead that man had descended from a lower order of animals. With local businessman George Rapala, Scopes had conspired to, to get charged with this violation, and after his arrest, the pair enlisted the aid of the American Civil Liberties Union to organize a defense. Hearing of the coordinated attack on Christian fundamentalism, William Jennings Bryan, the three-time Democratic presidential candidate and a fundamentalist hero, volunteered to assist the prosecution. Soon after, the great attorney Clarence Darrow agreed to join the ACLU in the defense, and the stage was set for one of the most famous trials in U.S. history. On July 10th, the monkey trial got underway, and within a few days, hordes of spectators and reporters had descended on Dayton to, as preachers set up revival tents along the city's main streets to keep the faithful stirred up. Inside the Rea Court courthouse, the defense suffered early setbacks when Judge John Ralston ruled against their attempt to prove the law unconstitutional and then refused to end this practice of opening each day's proceeding with prayer. Outside, Dayton took on a carnival-like atmosphere as an exhibit features featuring two chimpanzees and a supposed missing link opened in town, and vendors sold Bibles, toy monkeys, hot dogs, and lemonade. The missing link was, in fact, Joe Vines of Burlington, Vermont, a 51-year-old man who was of short stature and possessed a receding forehead and a protruding jaw. One of the chimpanzees, named Joe Mendy, wore a plaid suit, a brown fedora, and white spats, and entertained Dayton's citizens by monkeying around on the courthouse lawn. 
In the courtroom, Judge Ralston destroyed the defense's strategy by ruling that specific or expert scientific testimony on evolution was inadmissible, on the grounds that it was Scopes who was on trial, not the law he had violated. The next day, Ralston ordered the trial moved to the courthouse lawn, fearing that the weight of the crowd inside was in danger of collapsing the floor. In front of several thousand spectators in the open air, Darrow changed his tactics and his sole witness called Brian in an attempt to discredit his literal interpretation of the Bible. In a searching examination, Brian was subjected to severe ridicule and forced to make ignorant and contradictory statements to the amusement of the crowd. On July 21st, in his closing speech, Darrow asked the jury to return a verdict of guilty in order that the case might be appealed. Under Tennessee law, Brian was thereby denied the opportunity to deliver the closing speech he had been preparing for weeks. After eight minutes of deliberation, the jury returned with a guilty verdict, and Walston ordered Scopes to pay a fine of $100, the minimum the law allowed. Although Brian had won the case, he had been publicly humiliated, and his fundamentalist beliefs had been disgraced. Five days later, on July 26th, he lay down for a Sunday afternoon nap and never woke up. In 1927, the state Supreme Court overturned the monkey trial verdict on a technicality, but left the constitutional issue unresolved until 1968, when the U.S. Supreme Court overturned a similar Arkansas law on the grounds that it violated the First Amendment. What do you think, Scott? Like I said, very high level, but I think it's, um, I think it's telling in the fact that in 1925, we still fought about whether or not, you know, we were evolution brought us from monkeys or whatever you want to call them, you know. Right, some, even all the way back to primal slime. Well, yeah, I guess if you want to get technical there, it would be. We'd go back to the, you know, the the primal slime and something crawled out of there, you know, at, at some point. But, I mean, humans as a species have been around for roughly 200,000 years. Well, much. Uh, I should say, I shouldn't say that. I should say uh, the the genus Homo. So right. Homo erectus, Homo habilis, uh, yeah. all of that. Yep. Yeah. So we've been around for pretty much two hundred thousand years, and we've evolved even from there, and we even split from there. I mean, there are there are lines of that, such as uh, Homo. Uh, I want to say Homo erectus, which just dead ends. It just went away. Correct. So, what's your take on a, on a high level? What's your take on the Scopes trial? I'm not really sure. As we've mentioned, and as we'll, we'll talk about more going forward, most people's understanding of this in today's day and age. Now, me, I went to high school in the 80s, and I knew a little bit about the trial mm-hmm. through it being mentioned in biology class. But that was just, oh, and back in 1925, there was a trial about the teaching of evolution. Moving on, here is Mendel and his beans. Right, right. So most of my understanding comes from the play Inherit the Wind, which I'm going to talk a little bit more about okay. later in the episode. As, so, as, yeah, that's kind of what we said in, the, uh, in my opening article there is that right. you know, a lot of people get their knowledge of the Scopes Monkey trial from that. So... I'm going to move on next to a timeline. As I know you all know, I love timelines because it gives us an understanding in a more um, precise uh, way of, of the events that happen. So I got this from the NPR website. 
So 92 years ago, in July 1925, the mixture of religion, science, and the public schools caught fire in Dayton, Tennessee. The Scopes Trial, or Monkey Trial as it was called, dominated headlines across the country. The trial lasted just a week, but the questions it raised are as divisive now as they were back then. So NBR takes a look back at the Scopes Trial, the events that led up to it, and its aftermath. So, 1859. Charles Darwin's The Origin of Species is published. Darwin argues in his introduction that the view which most naturalists entertain, and which I formerly entertained, namely that each species has been independently created, is erroneous. So, then in 1871, Darwin publishes his second book, The Descent of Man. In this work, Darwin directly addresses the debate over the origin of mankind, arguing that, Man is descended from a hairy tail quadruped, probably arboreal in its habits, and an inhabitant of the Old World. So then in 1914, George William Hunter's A Civic Biology, the book that was, is later used in biology courses in Dayton, Tennessee, is published. A Civic Biology describes evolution as the, quote, belief that the simple forms of life on the earth slowly and gradually gave rise to those more complex and that thus ultimately the most complex forms came into existence, unquote. We jump then to 1921. Former Congressman and ex-Secretary of State William Jennings Bryan becomes a leader in the anti-evolution movement, delivering speeches entitled The Menace of Darwinism and The Bible and Its Enemies. Bryan declares in one address that it is better to trust that in the rock of ages than to know that the age of the rocks it is better for one to know that he is close to the heavenly father than to know how far the stars in the heavens are apart wow it sounds like this guy was really anti-science he was and in the play that's really um picked up a lot and obviously it's a play it's dramatized they didn't keep the names the same but for example, there there's one section where the Darrow character is asking a question of the William Jennings Bryan character, and he's talking about a passage from the Bible where one of the chosen stops the sun in the sky, and he's going on about uh, the Earth's rotational spin and what that would have done for gravi- gravity. He says, "How come nobody noticed?" And the Brian character says, well, they didn't notice it because it didn't happen. Well, it happened in the Bible. No, natural law is a product of God, and God can change it whenever he wants. Why don't you science people understand that, that natural laws are changeable at whim? And every time I read that, I'm just like, no, the reason we call it a natural law is because it's an underpinning of the world in which we live. Right, right. That would be like taking the you know, the concepts of, um, I lost the word here, but it, it's like taking any concept that has been proven scientifically to the best of our knowledge. Correct. And saying we can change it. Right. Now, when they talk about this guy, this, um, uh, this William Jennings Bryan, he was a one day believer, which means that he believed that in the Bible, when it took six days to create the heavens and the earth, it took six days. Correct. Even though, and I think we get to this at a later point in our discussion here. He actually, they actually somehow get him to say that they are considered time periods. So he was contradicting himself already. Right. Now, 
you're familiar with the uh, fiction author Piers Anthony. Oh, yes. Correct? Oh, yeah. Uh, most commonly known for his Xanth series. Yes, my wife loves those books. Yeah. I, I have tried to write read Piers <laughs> Anthony. Can't do it. It it doesn't work for me. See, now, I, I read Xanth when I was younger. I, he is incredibly fond of puns. Which I think might make it yeah, difficult that's, for that's, some readers. That's part of the. That's part of my problem. Yeah. However, he also had another series called Incarnations of Immortality. Started off as five books, but then he expanded it to seven. Okay. And he deals with death, time, fate, war, nature, and then the uh, later two he added evil and good. Right. And so basically, you have the incarnation of death, Thanatos. Um, the guy in the black cloak with the scythe and the skull face. Uh, you have Kronos, the incarnation of time, so on and so forth. The incarnation of good was, over time, abbreviated to what we now say as God. Basically, one of the O's dropped off. And in that book, dealing with the incarnation of good, God needs to be replaced. Okay. And so they are finding the new God, and they're questioning her about some of these things, including the inerrancy of the Bible. And one of the questions they ask her is, okay, we have Genesis, six days. And her answer is, well, that might be what man was able to understand, but God is intrinsically ununderstandable by man. And so it might be that a day for God is millions of years for man. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, I mean, that kind of goes back to the old joke where uh, a guy is um, praying to God and he wants to be rich and live for or you know, uh, be rich, I think is what it was. And and I don't remember the joke exactly, but he prays to God and God comes back and he goes, money, money means nothing to me, you know. Uh, a penny to me is a million dollars to you. And he go, and they start talking about time, and God goes, time is nothing to me. A second to me is a million years to you. And so the guy goes, well, God, can I have a penny? And God goes, just a second. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I think I've heard that one, yes. So anyway, to get back to the timeline here, uh, Brian, 1924, Brian delivers a lecture in Nashville entitled, Is the Bible True? Copies of the speech were delivered to members of the Tennessee legislature, including Representative John Washington Butler. So then on January 21st, 1925, Representative, Representative Butler introduces legislation in the Tennessee House of Representatives calling for a ban on the teaching of evolution. The proposed law, known as the Butler Bill, would prohibit the teaching of, quote, any theory that denies the story of the divine creation of man as taught in the Bible, and to teach instead that man has descended from the lower order of animals, unquote. January 27, 1925, the Tennessee House of Representatives approves the bill, the Butler Bill on a 71 to 5 vote. March 13, 1925, after several hours of heated debate, the Tennessee Senate approves the Butler Bill 24 to 6. So, then we go to March 21st, 1925. Tennessee Governor Austin P. signs the Butler Bill into law. The new law is the first in the United States to ban the teaching of evolution. So, up until this time, everywhere in the United States, you had the option to teach evolution. Correct. Based on Origins of the Species and the Descent of Man by Darwin. Correct. Okay. 
Then on May 4, 1925, a Chattanooga newspaper runs an item noting that the American Civil Liberties Union is seeking teachers willing to challenge the Butler Law. The item says that the, U, the ACLU is, quote, looking for a Tennessee teacher who is willing to accept our services in testing this law in the courts. Our lawyers think a friendly test can be arranged without costing the teacher his or her job. All we need now is a willing client, unquote. May 5, 1925. A group of town leaders in Dayton, Tennessee, read the news item about the ACLU search. They quickly hatch a plan to bring the case to Dayton, a scheme that they will hope will generate publicity and jumpstart the town's economy. They asked 24-year-old science teacher and football coach John Thomascopes if he'd be willing to be indicted to bring the case to trial. Scopes agrees, even though he has only taught biology as a substitute teacher and later says he isn't sure he covered evolution in his classes. May 12, 1925, Brian agrees to participate in the trial on the side of the prosecution, ensuring that the case will receive significant national interest. Several days later, well-known attorney Clarence Darrow and Dudley Field Malone announced their interest in, the, in representing Scopes. Then on May 25, 1925, Scopes is indicted by a grand jury for violating Tennessee's anti-evolution law. Just what we know up to this point in the timeline. Right. This is the thinnest case I think I have ever seen come before a court of law. Correct. And in some ways, the, the setup for this reminds me of uh, what became the Supreme Court case, Plessy versus Ferguson, challenging racial discrimination. Okay. About where African-Americans were allowed to sit in public transportation. So we had the defendant who was African-American, but was very light-skinned and routinely passed as white. And so to set up the trial to challenge the law, he deliberately sat in the whites-only section, identified himself as African-American because he'd been overlooked routinely, mm -hmm. and then stated that he was refusing to move and they had to arrest him. So, I mean, what we're looking at here, and, and we'll talk about this, I'm, I'm sure, throughout, is... We're looking at a show trial here. Somebody is trying to get a point across. Exactly. And they are, right now, they're putting all those pieces together. And Scopes, who, in my research, I had found out, didn't plan on staying in Dayton. Nope. He was going to go somewhere else and teach somewhere else. I mean, this was a stopover in his career. It was not where he planned on staying. Right. Which might have made him more willing to participate in this. Right. So then May to July 1925, preparations begin in Dayton for an ex expected onslaught of trial-related publicity. Six blocks of Dayton's main road are transformed into a pedestrian mall. A speaker's platform is built on the lawn of the courthouse, and a tourist camp is constructed. The courtroom is outfitted with the latest technology to transmit the story to the world, telegraph and telephone wiring, movie newsreel camera platforms, and radio microphones. WGN Radio broadcasts the trial live at a cost of more than $1,000 a day just for telephone lines. The first such broadcast of its kind. I mean, today, we're used to every trial. If you've got the right channels on TV, you can watch any trial you want. Exactly. From the People's Court to real trial. I mean, we watched OJ. We watched um, the Menendez Brothers. We yep. watched, you know, those things were, for us, for our world, that wasn't new. But this was like... 
very much a new thing, a new idea that, that they used. So July 10th, the trial begins with jury selection. Judge John Ralston asked the Reverend Lem Lemuel M. Cartwright to open proceedings with a prayer. July 13, 1925, in an effort to have the Butler Law declared unconstitutional, defense attorney Clarence Darrow delivers a long, fiery speech arguing that the law violates freedom of religion. Darrow argues that, quote, We find today as brazen and as bold an attempt to destroy learning as was ever made in the Middle Ages, unquote. July 14, 1925, in the third day of the trial, Darrow objects to the practice of opening the trial with prayer. Judge Ralston overrules the objection, noting that he has instructions instructed the ministers who offer the prayer to make no reference to the issue involved in this case. July 15, 1925. Judge Ralston overrules the defense's motion to have the Butler Law declared unconstitutional. Ralston says in his ruling that the law, quote, gives no preference to any particular religion or mode of worship. Our public schools are not maintained as places of worship, but, on the contrary, were designed, instituted, and maintained for the purpose of mental and moral de development and discipline, unquote. In an afternoon session that day, a not guilty plea is entered on Scope's behalf. Each side presents its opening statements. The prosecution questioned the superintendent of schools and two of Scope's students, who testify that Scope's taught his class about evolution. The defense questions zoologist Maynard Metcalf, who testifies that evolution is widely embraced theory in the scientific community. Okay, so I got a, I got a couple things here. I'm, I'm thinking, okay, so they say that he taught evolution, but he was a substitute teacher. Right. Now, you're a teacher, Scott. Yes, I am. And you've also been a substitute in the past. I have. Now, as a substitute, do you go in and are you expected to write that day's plan? If it's a one or two day substitution, then no. Usually, and I know a lot of fellow teachers complain about this, is that they will prepare material for the substitute to teach. But oftentimes, especially like one of the subjects I teach is a foreign language. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult to find a substitute who's fluent in the language. And so oftentimes both in case of emergency subs, like you get violently sick the night before and you can't make it in and you didn't have anything prepared. Oftentimes, teachers will simply tell the sub, plug this movie in and I'll pick it up when I get back. So we don't expect these one or two day subs to create any material or teach anything new. That being said, I have on occasion prepared material for a sub and come back to find that the sub didn't cover the material because they had something else they wanted to talk to the students about. Or that they started in on the material and it was something that connected to something that they knew about and they went off on this huge tangent that took up the entire period. So teachers can't, substitute teachers in theory could kind of hijack a class and teach what they wanted to. Yes, but... Depending on how they do it, it can lead to them not getting more substitute gigs. <laughs> well, okay. But so what, what I'm getting at here is, in theory, Darrow, who was the football coach, would... Scopes, not Darrow. I'm sorry. Scopes, you're right. Scopes, who was the football coach, could have had a short-term time 
he should have had a plan prepared for him. Correct. In which case, he was teaching what the other teacher would have taught. Right. Okay. All right, people. We, you're getting all this. We're, we're breaking this apart the best we can. So Now, there's a, a word that you've used a couple of times, and I, I keep hearing it bandied about, and a lot of people are unsure about the definition of it, and that's the word theory. Okay. And part of the problem is, as you know, I'm also an English teacher. I yep. love words. That's why I'm going to let you take this, because I know what it means when I say it, but I can't explain it. So and I'll part of you... the problem with the word theory is that it has, like many words in English, it has multiple definitions depending on how it's used. In general usage, a theory is a thought. And most people, especially those who like to attack science, latch onto that definition. Well, it's just what you think. What they're either inadvertently or deliberately skipping over is the fact that when you apply it to science, theory means a hypothesis, which is the initial thought. Gee, I wonder if this is true. And then you do rigorous experimentation to try to prove whether it's true or more commonly to see if you can prove it wrong. And then once you do that, if you're a reputable scientist and you're you're working on something tangible, you then publish your results and call a whole bunch of other scientists and say, hey, this is what I thought. I can't prove it wrong. Here's what I did. Can you guys prove it wrong? Or can you guys find somewhere I goofed up? And then after it's been rigorously tested and retested and verified and re-verified, then it becomes called a theory simply because science to kind of toot science's horn, is humble enough to realize that regardless of how smart they are and how rigorously they test, they are unwilling to say something is an absolute because they know that in the future we may find something that disproves it and we're willing to say, oh, looks like we were wrong. Okay. The way I think I'm using it would be that first definition you gave, just kind of a... That it's a thought. Yeah. All right, so let's let's move on in this timeline. So July 17, 1925, Judge Ralston rules in favor of a motion by prosecutors to bar expert testimony by scientists. Ralston argues that the expert's opinion on evolutionary theory would, quote, shed no light, unquote, on the issue at hand in the trial. Whether Scopes violated the state's anti-evolution laws, many reporters leave town, believing that the trial is effectively over. Scopes is recruited to write news stories on the trial for some of the delinquent journalists. Hmm. I think that's all I'm going to say about that one right now. It's just, <laughs> hmm. On July 20th, 1925, with the proceedings taking place outdoors due to the heat, the defense is, in a highly unusual move, calls Brian to testify as a biblical expert. Clarence Darrow asks Brian a series of questions about whether the Bible should be interpreted literally. As the questioning continues, Brian accuses Darrow of making a, quote, slur at the Bible, unquote, while Darrow mocks Brian for, quote, fool ideals that no intelligent Christian on earth believes, unquote. July 21st, 1925, the final day of the trial opens with Judge Ralston's ruling that Brian cannot return to the stand and that his testimony should be expunged from the record. Ralston's declares that Brian's testimony quote, can shed no light upon any issue that will be pending before the higher court, courts, unquote. 
Darrow then asks the court to bring in the jury and find Scopes guilty, a move that would allow a higher court to consider appeal later. The jury returns its guilty verdict after nine minutes of deliberation. Scopes is fined $100, which both Brian and the ACLU offer to pay for him. After the verdict is read, John Scopes delivers his only statement of the trial, declaring his intent, quote, to oppose this law in any way I can. Any other action would be in violation of my ideal academic freedom. That is, to teach the truth as guaranteed in our Constitution of personal and religious freedom. Unquote. Then we go on beyond the trial. So, I mean, the, the effects of this can still be felt in some ways. Yes. So, we continue on July 26, uh, 1925, five days after the scope trial ends. Brian dies in his sleep in Dayton. I think they just asked him too many questions, and his <laughs> and his morality compass got messed up, and he just kind of, like, went to see the father? Well, Brian was, and they, they make mention of, of this here and there throughout allusions to the trial, Brian was not a slender man. Okay, so he was a large man. Yes, and uh, as you mentioned, at one point the trial was moved outdoors because of the heat. Right. Now, this is July in Tennessee. Yeah. Pre-air conditioning. Right. We're talking 90-plus degree heat on average, and if you're inside with as many people would have been crowding into the courthouse, plus now all this new technology, all the electricity running for all of the wiring and such— you're probably getting up into 100, maybe even 110 degrees inside the courthouse. Right. And on top of that, you're looking at the country's in a recession at this time. We haven't hit the Great Depression yet, right. but we are on our way. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and, and that means the Dust Bowl is coming and everything is coming. That means heat temperatures are rising. Right. And, and there was there was a good 30 years where the temperatures, especially out west, not so much in Tennessee, but, you know, where the temperatures just got insane. Yes. So, yeah, I can definitely see that. So, July 31st, 1925, Brian is buried in Arlington National Cemetery. The words, he kept the faith, are inscribed on his tombstone. Then in 1926, Mississippi becomes the second state to pass a law banning the teaching of evolution in public schools. May 31st, 1926, the appeal hearing in the Scopes case begins. January 15, 1927, the Tennessee Supreme Court rules that the Butler Law is constitutional. However, it overturned Scope's verdict on a technicality, ruling that his fine should have been set by the jury hearing the case instead of by Judge Ralston. The justices declare in their ruling that nothing is to be gained by prolonging the life of this bizarre case. Also in 1927, George William Hunter publishes A New Civic Biology, an updated version of the biology book used in the Dayton High School, where Scopes taught. The new text deals with the concept of evolution cautiously and avoids explicitly naming the theory. 1928, a third state, Arkansas, enacts legislation banning the instruction on evolution. Do you think it took this long because people didn't really know that the theory was out there? Well... It's kind of hard for us nowadays to really understand the pace at which news traveled back in the 20s. And it especially... Just, it didn't it just pop up on their on their uh, smartphones? Yeah, not so much. Oh, okay. Um, and Darwin was in England. So The Origin of Species and the Descent of Man was originally published in London. Mm -hmm. 
So it may have taken until the 1880s or 1890s for it to make it over to the U.S. in large enough numbers for enough people to know about it that it would actually start to be printed in school textbooks. I suppose that, that that's fair enough. And, and that's kind of what I was getting at. That's why I kind of asked you that question because, you know, and especially if we have younger listeners, they don't, they don't know time without a cell phone. Right. They don't know time without a computer sitting in front of them where news the world over is at your fingertips. Correct. You know, you hear, oh, there's an uprising in country X. You go, tick, 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 tick. oh, look at that. This is happening. That's happening. It's all. There's a live video stream on right. Facebook from it. Right. From somebody <laughs> who's sitting there with their little cell phone. Right. You know, the, the world now has shrunk so much compared to what it was. I mean, not in size, obviously, but Correct. in just the, the distribution of of knowledge and and news. Culture and pretty much everything. Right. Now, you're familiar with the poem The Charge of the Light Brigade, correct? Yep. That uh, poem is significant because it commemorates an actual battle in the Crimean War, and that battle was one of the first ones to have almost live reporting from it, because it took place in an area where telegraph lines had recently been installed that ran back to London. Okay. And so there was a reporter embedded, one of the first instant, recorded instances of an embedded reporter, with the British Army. And he sent a dispatch by telegraph back to London, which then the poet who wrote The Charge of the Light Brigade read, and that inspired him to compose the poem. Okay, so along with that, with the with you know things like that, where it came across telephone or tele telegraph telegraph wires, you know, World War One, World War Two, the the knowledge got back to Washington pretty quick, but to disperse it out through the country still took time. Right, you were and probably most, three four days behind at that point. Yes, because a lot of it, especially during the wars, was on promotional newsreels. So you had the Pentagon cutting together footage from the battlefield to make things look the way they wanted them to. Right. And then they had to physically send them out across the country to movie theaters. Right. And then you went to the to the dime movies or whatever, and you started with a newsreel, where we start with trailers for upcoming shows and stuff. Plus commercials. Plus, Can't forget those. Oh, yeah. Now they added commercials. <laughs> but you know what? It keeps my ticket price below $10 most of the time, so... If I have to watch a Pepsi commercial, so be it. Yeah. And see, I remember back in high school, I'd take a date to a 7.30 or even a 9.30 show, and two tickets, two sodas, and a giant bucket of popcorn was 10 bucks. Oh, yeah, yeah. When Nikki and I were first married, we lived in Eau Claire, and they had a dollar theater. Mm-hmm. So the, the, um, the food and the drink and stuff wasn't... Like budget as budget as getting in, right? But the movie only cost us two bucks. Exactly. So worst case scenario for six dollars, we could go in and have a big soda to share and watch. You know, it was second run movies, but it was still. I mean, they're still good movies, and especially before uh, VCRs and DVD players. Right. Oftentimes, if you missed it the first time it came through, this was your chance to see it. In case it wasn't one of those that made the cut as a TV movie, which then you have to deal with it being edited for content and right. cut in with commercials and everything. And then, and you know, moving on, you get to Vietnam and you get to Korea. 
And there, a lot of times, if you read the histories from the White House, they're saying, I wish they didn't have this, these embedded people, because America's seeing what's really happening. Right. Technology advanced to the point where a single organization could no longer control the narrative. Right. So anyway, moving on. So in 1930, the William Jennings Bryan Memorial University opens in Dayton, Tennessee. Known today as Bryan College, the institution described itself as a highly ranked, nationally competitive college that puts Christ above all. Uh, March 13, 1938, Clarence Darrow dies at the age of 80. January 10th, 1955, the play Inherit the Wind, which is loosely based on the Scopes trial, opens on Broadway. 1960, 35 years after the Scopes trial, the film version of Inherit the Wind opens at a drive-in movie theater in, D in Dayton. Scope returns to the town for the premiere and is given the key to the city. Can I say sham? Of course. Okay. I mean, everything about this trial is a, is sham. a sham. Yeah. So, so May, it's just continuing the theme. May 17, 1967, Tennessee repeals the Butler Act, the law that banned the teaching of evolution in public schools. In 1967, John Scopes publishes Center of the Storm, his memoir of the trial. <laughs> oh, my God. I, <laughs> it's just crazy, man. It just makes me laugh. Um, 1968, in Epperson versus Arkansas, the Supreme Court strikes down an Arkansas law banning the teaching of evolution. October 21st, 1917, or 1970, John Scope dies at the age of 70. 1973, Tennessee becomes the first state in the United States to pass a law requiring that public schools give equal emphasis to, quote, the Genesis account in the Bible, unquote, along with other theories about the origins of man. The bill also requires a disclaimer be used any time evolution is presented or discussed in public schools. It demands evolution be taught as a theory and not a fact. Which, as we talked about before, it already is a theory. Exactly. It's just a scientific theory, not a common everyday theory. Correct. 1975, two years after it passed, Tennessee's equal time law is declared unconstitutional by a federal appeals court. 1977, the National Park Service designates Ray County Courthouse in Dayton a National Historic Landmark. Now the government's involved <laughs> in the sham. Yes. That is the Scopes Monkey Trial. Right. Appropriately uh, enough. Yeah, I suppose. In 1982, in McLean versus Arkansas Board of Education, a U.S. district judge strikes down an Arkansas law that required public schools to give, quote, balanced treatment to evolution and creationism whenever either was taught. 1987, in Edwards versus Aguilard, the Supreme Court rules that a Louisiana law requiring public schools to give, quote, balanced treatment to creationism and evolution is unconstitutional. And then 2005, school boards and legislatures across the country are continuing to debate how to teach students about the origins of life on Earth. Policymakers in at least 16 states are currently examining the controversy. Wow. Yes. I, okay, so you're a teacher currently... In a system. Yes. Do you know what your science teachers teach? I'm fairly certain that they teach evolution. They teach okay. Darwin. Do they give any time to creationism? I don't think so. Not no. even like a passing... No, and I think that's because... Partly because this issue has been so sensitized. Mm-hmm. 
And the creationism aspect is so closely tied to Christianity and the Bible. Right. And that perhaps unfairly, it's been stigmatized as you can't have both. So now, in my case, when I was a student growing up in Boston, mm-hmm. there were now you many, went to a um, public school. It was a public school. Okay. It was a public school. It was an exam school. So students from all over the city of Boston went there. You had to take a, essentially a college entrance exam to get okay. into the high school, and so you got students from all over the city, from all the different school district, what would have been sub-districts right. within the, the city of Boston. But, as I think I've mentioned before, I know talking to you, and I think on a, a couple of our other podcasts, the Boston Catholic Archdiocese is not only huge, it's rich and powerful. Right. And when I was in high school, which was 85 to 88, it was still contrary to Boston public school policy to teach sex ed and evolution after a point. So when I had freshman biology, we got up, we got as far as Gregor Mendel and his bean patch. Right. And then we jumped straight into dissection. So we didn't talk about Darwin. We also didn't talk about creationism. We just skipped that whole thing entirely. They're just like, ah, these three chapters. Pretty much. (laughs) And health class which was mandated, Mm -hmm. only dealt with the fact that boys and girls have different parts. And you don't need to know about the other parts. And you need to keep them clean. And that's about it. Now, as far as... I went to school... I was in high school from 1992 to... No, that wouldn't be right. 1991 to 1994. Right. And the way it was taught for... Now, I took AP Biology, which was... A two-year biology course, right? which I only got through half of it. I only did it for a year. And then I went and took regular biology because I hate dissecting things. Okay. And <laughs> Unless somebody's cooked it for you. Well, okay, yeah. If it's, <laughs> if it's dinner, that's a little different. But it was, it was just the, you know, in that first year, we, all we got through was Mendel's bean patch. That first year was all the way up to there. But in the regular biology class, they taught evolution. They never touched on creationism. You know, I got that in CCD. But I have always, and I've talked to a couple priests about this throughout the years, is how do you, you know, because the Vatican in, in recent years has become more and more, you know, oh, yes, science is, science is real, but it has to somehow mesh with religion. Right. And I talked to a priest once, and he had the greatest way to mesh these two things that is kind of what I think is the way it probably happened. So if you'll bear with me. So basically what it is is evolution is real. I had a priest tell me that evolution is real. It happened. This This is the result of evolution. However, creationism then tells us that God created the first man and woman. However, what the priest was saying is God took and gave sentience to the first homo, you know, whatever, erectus, uh, 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 habilis or yeah, so whatever. On and so, forth. so those are our common ancestors. So that meshing of those two actually explains more about the whole religious aspect of it 
And, I mean, it meshes them very well. And I can see that as a, you know, what could happen. Because God would have that power to put sentience, you know, to put common sense, morality, and all this stuff into these two creatures. Mm -hmm. And then we continue to evolve. I don't know. That That's just, I heard that once. I talked to a priest about that once. And I thought, that actually makes sense. Okay. And actually... Um, many people have approached it from that perspective in literature. Um, there's these two books by this amazing author called Park Godwin. Okay. One is called, the first one is called The Snake Oil Wars, and then the sequel is Waiting for the Galactic Bus. Okay. And the basic premise behind them is that God and the devil are these two alien brothers who were stranded on primitive Earth as a school prank. Okay. And so to keep themselves occupied, they took a primate that existed on the planet at the time and used their technology to advance his cranial capacity over what they call the cultural threshold. Okay. Kind of what you were saying that the, the priest mentioned, that granting sentience. Right. So, and it, it's kind of interesting because they, they talk about that in the um, the first book, and then in the second book, the aliens have come back to pick up the brothers because doing that violated their laws. And so they bring the older brother who had been serving in the role of God back to their planet to stand trial. Okay. While here on earth in heaven, the younger brother who was the devil is actually on trial for being the devil. And then you're familiar with Jim Butcher, the author of the yep. Harry Dresden series. I am. One of the, or three of the characters that recur in the series are the Knights of the Sword, or the Knights of the Cross. Mm -hmm. Each of them carrying a sword forged with one of the three nails from Christ's cross. One of them is a Russian atheist. He is my favorite. Sanya, yes, he is great. And he carries the Sword of Hope. And I, I love the, the irony in it. You have an atheist carrying the Holy Sword of Hope. And they have some interesting conversations throughout the book about it. And um, he explains that he has no problem reconciling his atheism with the fact that, in his words, the archangel Michael appeared to him and handed him the sword and charged him with this holy mission. Right. Because he says, how do I know that Michael wasn't an alien? God may exist. God may be a supreme intelligence of another alien species who, for some reason, is interested in and manipulating human events. And Dresden's like, okay, I really can't answer that. And Sanya says, throughout history, we've always said any sufficiently advanced technology appears to be magic. Yeah, true. You know, and one of my favorite lines Sanya says in uh, Death Masks, I think it is, is, I'm Russian. I know how to follow orders. <laughs> Pretty much, yes. So, all right. The last piece that I've got for today is uh, actually from the global, or, I'm sorry, the gospelcoalition.org. It's nine things you may not know about the Scopes trial, Scopes monkey trial. So, number one, Inherit the Wind was an anti-anti-communist play. So, most of what the public knows about the Scopes trial comes from Inherit the Wind, yes. a script that became a Broadway production, an Academy Award-winning film, and a made-for-TV movie. 
Like Arthur Miller's The Crucible, playwrights Jerome Lawrence and Robert E. Lee wrote Inherit the Wind as a response to the climate of anti-communist hysteria during the McCarthy era. Well, we kind of needed that. I mean, something that was against that. But while the play was never intended to present a historically accurate depiction of the trial, many people still assume it is basically factual. And you're going to talk about this later, so we won't yes. go into this too much, mm -hmm. but um, you said before we started recording that most of your knowledge on this before we did this was from that play. Exactly. All right. So number two, the trial was a publicity stunt. Now, we've talked about this, but I'm not going to read the whole paragraph here. But, but when the Butler Act, a law which forbade the teaching of evolution in Tennessee's public schools, caught the attention of the ACLU, they sent out a press release stating that they wanted to challenge the act in court. Dayton, Tennessee went, ooh, we have this chance to bring money into the economy. Okay. The Americans were already in a slope um, towards the Great Depression. Correct. I get it. But then to make it into this trial, they, they went and made it a publicity stunt to bring money in. They, they put extra seats in the courtroom, which they ended up not using. They wired the town so that whether you were outside the courthouse or whether you were in a gym down the street, you could listen. So it just, you know, I, I just keep reading this stuff. And the more I read about this, the more I just kind of shook my head. So number three, Scopes wasn't a martyr. He was a co-conspirator. Although John T. Scopes was the plaintiff in the famous trial, he was not the regular biology teacher, but a football coach who only taught the subject as a substitute. When Rapala approached him about being the quote-unquote sacrificial lamb, Scopes hesitantly agreed to go along with the PR stunt. Local prosecutors, who were also in on the plan, swore out a warrant for Scopes, who was arrested and immediately released on bail pending trial. Mm -hmm. Four, Darrow wasn't the first choice. Although Clarence Darrow was portrayed as the hero of Inherit the Wind, he wasn't the first choice of either the citizens of Dayton or the ACLU. Rapala originally contacted the science fiction writer H.G. Wells, who wasn't interested, and the ACLU feared the militantly atheistic Darrow would turn the trial into attack on religion rather than a defense of the First Amendment. The choice was ultimately left to Scopes, who was impressed by the fact that Darrow had significant name recognition as the attorney for the most recent quote-unquote trial of the century, the murders of Loeb and Leopold. Right. So number five, Brian wasn't the lead prosecutor, and he knew the defendant. While Darrow was the lead defense attorney, William Jennings Bryan was, the only, was only the assistant prosecutor. The district's attorney general, Tom Stewart, was the lead prosecutor. Scopes also knew his famous prosecutor. Not only had he previously met Bryan at a high school graduation in Salem, Illinois, Scopes considered the man prosecuting his trial to be, quote, the greatest man produced in the United States since the days of Thomas Jefferson, unquote. <laughs> I mean, this just keeps getting the, the, the circling and the... <laughs> it, it's weird, but if you think about some of the publicity stunts that people are willing to undertake today... Oh, yeah. Uh, here, maybe we have some of their origins. Yeah, absolutely. So number six, the prosecution's Bible expert believed in the day-age theory. During the trial, William Jennings Bryan took the stand as an expert witness on the Bible. In response to Darrow's relentless questions as to whether the six days of creation were 24-hour days, Bryan said, My impression is that they were periods. The next day, the judge ruled that Bryan's testimony be stricken from the record as evidence. Number seven, teaching evolution and eugenics. The biology book that was used by Scopes was George William Hunter's Civic Biology. 
Although a standard biology text, it included the author's champion, champion, championing of eugenics and white supremacy, his contempt for people with disabilities, and his dislike of the charity for the inferior. Nice guy. Exactly. Now, we've talked about evolution. What does the word eugenics mean to you? Uh, eugenics is manipulating the the structural basis of people to make them what you know supreme be- uh the nazis were big into eugenics yes they wanted to make the superior you know the aryan race and they used eugenics which is selectively selecting certain traits that they want passed along and purging the rest right it, it's essentially selective or guided evolution yeah yeah, absolutely. So, uh, those of you who are Star Trek fans, original series, and then uh, the second original cast movie with Khan. The Khan character came about through what Star Trek Universe called the Eugenics War. Right. So, number eight, the defense want. Well, before I go to this, um, eugenics bad. Don't 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 deal with it. Don't think it's a good thing. It's it's bad. <laughs> Disclaimer. Yes. Number eight, the defense wanted to lose the case. As the trial neared an end, Darrow asked the jury to return a verdict of guilty in order that the case might be appealed to the Tennessee Supreme Court. They complied, and the judge handed down the $100 fine to Scopes. H.L. Mencken, whose coverage of the trial for the Baltimore Sun swayed public opinion against the anti-evolutionist, paid the fine for Scopes. The ruling was reversed, but no one wanted to retry the case. Number nine. A year after the trial, the Tennessee Supreme Court reversed the decision of the Dayton Court on a technicality. The fine should have been set by the jury rather than the judge. Rather than send the case back for further action, however, the Tennessee Supreme Court dismissed the case claiming, nothing is to be gained by prolonging the life of this bizarre case. I'm speechless. I'm going to hand this over to you, Scott, because at this point, I think I've, I've run into the ground that it is definitely a, a, a stunt trial. Somebody was trying to prove a point, and in the in the long run, the point was proven. But what do you got for us? Okay, well, I mean, here we are, almost a hundred years later, and we're still not only talking about this, we're still fighting this battle over certain subjects being censored or restricted in our schools. I mean, in your timeline, you had as recently as the 60s and 70s, where states are still debating whether or not this can be taught. Um, this particular trial and the underlying conflict are so influential that, as you've mentioned, they inspired a play, Inherit the Wind, which debuted on Broadway in 1955. It was then made into the major motion picture, Academy Award-winning picture, starring Spencer Tracy and Gene Kelly. Uh, there are actually at least two made-for-TV movie versions of it. Uh, the first one starring Jack Lemmon and George C. Scott. Now, I've one. never seen that, but that actually, with those two actors in it, it can't be bad. Oh, I know. And, well, look at the second one, Kirk Douglas and Jason Robarts. Yeah, yeah. So, it was even brought back on Broadway in 2007 with Christopher Plummer and Brian Dennehy. So, now, it, um, the play did compress the trial, and it, it fictionalized some elements. In fact, I have a little introduction written by the playwrights. Okay. So this is from uh, 1955 when they wrote it. They say, Inherit the wind is not history. The events which took place in Dayton, Tennessee during the scorching July of 1925 are clearly the genesis of this play. It has, however, an exodus entirely all its own. I love how they're throwing the little biblical references. Yeah, yeah. 
Only a handful of phrases have been taken from the actual transcript of the famous Scopes trial. Some of the characters of the play are related to the colorful figures in that battle of giants, but they have life and language of their own, and therefore names of their own. The William Jennings Bryan character is named Matthew Harrison Brady. The Clarence Darrow character is named Henry Drummond. Okay. So, uh, the greatest reporters and historians of the century have written millions of words about the monkey trial. We are indebted to them for their brilliant reportage, and we are grateful to the late Arthur Garfield Hayes, who recounted to us much of the unwritten vividness of the Dayton adventure from his own memory and experience. So the, the playwrights not only looked at the reports and everything, they talked to someone who was there. Yeah, and, and that makes the most sense. And the fact that they're saying, you know, hey, this isn't history. We got our... our Inspiration. Yeah, our inspiration, our thought process from the trial, but it's not the trial. Right. So, the collision of Brian and Darrow at Dayton was dramatic, but it was not a drama. Moreover, the issues of their conflict have acquired new dimension and meaning in the 30 years since they clashed at the Ray County Courthouse. So, Inherit the Wind does not pretend to be journalism. It is theater. It is not 1925. The stage direction set the time as not too long ago. It might have been yesterday. It could be tomorrow. And that that's what I, I love about this. And, and also the literature based on real events. If it's done properly and you address the underlying themes, right. which we, we talked about, this was considered an anti-anti-communist play. It's, and a lot of people are like, okay, anti-anti, so take those two out. Oh, it's a communist play. No, it's not <laughs> a communist play. It was written in an era and an atmosphere of suspicion and hatred and demonizing the other. Well, you know, anybody that is familiar at all with uh, McCarthyism, thank you, Wisconsin. Um, hey, McCarthy and Ed Gein, we're doing good. Yeah, we're, we well, can't forget Jeffrey Dahmer. Well, yes. If we're going to go with the, with the highlights. But, you know, McCarthyism threw a pail over the entire country because this guy came out and he started pointing fingers that everybody was a communist. Right. Everybody that wasn't him, basically, or his inner sanctum group, were communists. And it, it was causing people to lose jobs. It was causing families to be destroyed. And in the end, you know how many, do you know how many communists were um, convicted because of McCarthyism? I don't, but I'm betting it's a very small number. Zero. That's a pretty they small never number. Found, they never found a single communist in where he pointed his finger. And, you know, <laughs> again, that's just something where he wanted the limelight. He right. wanted to be the big guy who found the communists and got him out of government. But they weren't there. Exactly. <laughs> or at least they weren't where he was pointing. Right. And it was amazing the level of coincidence between the people he pointed at correlating to people who disagreed with him. Yeah. His his political um, enemies were at the top of the list. Yep. And the sad part about McCarthyism is it overflowed into everything. It overflowed into Hollywood. They had the blacklist because you might be communist. You may have at some time consorted with somebody who might be a communist or might have consorted with a communist. I mean, it was it's absolutely stupid when you look at it from a historical fact. Right. In fact, the, the whole chain of connections, it Reminds me of both both of the the story of Six Degrees of Separation, mm -hmm. but then also um, Dark Helmet's little speech towards the end of Spaceballs, where he's about to fight Lone Star, and he says, "I am your father's brother's uncle's nephew's former roommate." 
What's that, that make us? Absolutely nothing, which is what you're about to become. <laughs> yes. And, but that was the tenuousness of the chain of evidence a lot of times in right. McCarthy. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It was like, I mean, let's be realistic. You and I, sometime in our life, we've probably talked to a communist. I'm sure. You know. <laughs> I, I went to college with a Russian exchange student. Okay. Yeah. She was from Moscow. Her fi- And this was in the early 90s, and her family were very wealthy and politically connected. Well, then she was definitely a communist exactly. at that time. You know, nope. it just – but it's, it's just those things. It's like, does that make us guilty of being communists? Nope. No. <laughs> Not at all. But – all right. Go on. Okay. Um, so now, as we've talked about, the, the play compressed the trial and it fictionalized some of the evidence – or some of the elements – but they did draw their inspiration from the actual events, including uh, some of the speeches. And we've talked about how Darrow and Brian were phenomenal orators and, and some arguably right. some of the greatest orators of their day. So I have a, a couple of passages that I'd like to read. Okay. And um, the this first one I chose, it's actually by neither of the main characters. It's by the town reverend. Okay. And the the reason I selected it is it's early in the play, and it kind of gives a sense of how black and white the divide was, and how each side worked to demonize the other. In this case, literally. So as I mentioned, the the Clarence Darrow character is named Henry Drummond. So okay. The, the town reverend says, "I saw Drummond once in a courtroom in Ohio. A man was on trial for a most brutal crime." Although he knew and admitted the man was guilty, Drummond was perverting the evidence to cast the guilt away from the accused and onto you and me and all of society. I can still see him, a slouching hulk of a man whose head juts out like an animal's. You look into his face and you wonder why God made such a man. And then you know that God didn't make him, that he is a creature of the devil, perhaps even the devil himself. So very dramatic, very much otherizing this this man who is simply coming here to do a job mm-hmm. and it, if you think about it at the court defense attorney under our system of law his job is to prepare the best defense possible for his client to ensure a fair trial and to make sure that the prosecution does things in accordance with the law well and, and the thing about trial is it is not on the defense to prove the person innocent it is upon the prosecution to prove them guilty beyond a reasonable doubt right as much as we may dislike defense trial attorneys sometimes that's their job exactly their job is to you may be the scum of the earth but it is their job to make sure you a get a fair trial b if there's any doubt you don't go to jail right because you're still considered innocent Mm -hmm. and c that if all that goes to the side then to get you the most fair jail term or fine or whatever that, you know, makes sense for the crime committed. Correct. So, you know, we may not like them, especially if it's somebody we know that's up against them, but that's their job. Right. And there are various versions of this saying, but a a very common saying is better 10 guilty men go free than a single innocent man goes to jail, Mm -hmm. which is the whole point of the defense attorney and our system of jurisprudence. All right. The second passage I have is from the um, is from Matthew Harrison Brady, who is the William Jennings Bryan okay. analog. Okay, and this is uh, he's just come to town. He's been received essentially at a tent revival, um, 
He's been given the key to the city. He's been named an honorary colonel in the state militia, so on and so forth. He says, friends, and I can see most of you are my friends from the way you have decked out your beautiful city of Hillsborough. Mrs. Brady and I are delighted to be among you. I could only wish one thing, that you had not given us quite so warm a welcome. And he takes off his heavy coat. Crowd laughs. Bless you. My friends of Hillsborough, you know why I have come here. I have not come merely to prosecute a lawbreaker, an arrogant youth who has spoken out against the revealed word. I have come because what has happened in a schoolroom in your town has unloosed a wicked attack from the big cities of the north, an attack upon the law which you have so wisely placed among the statutes of this state. I am here to defend that which is most precious in the hearts of all of us, the living truth of the scriptures. And right off the bat, he's supposed to be the prosecutor. Right. He's supposed to be proving that Scopes broke the law, the Butler law, right. and taught evolution. Correct. And right off the bat, and the, the crowd is welcoming him, he's saying, this isn't about your law. This is about the Bible. And so it, it's interesting how this is framed. Now, as we mentioned, this is overly dramatized because it's a play. Right. It's compressed. It's really highlighting the disparity between the sides. And people need to remember that, especially nowadays with so many, like, docudramas or biopics and almost all of them unless they're claiming to be a documentary are not going to be entirely factually accurate right. and that's why when we do this podcast we do so much research into the topics that we cover because there's more to it than what you see on the surface especially with our soundbite society right yeah absolutely and and we try to bring the the best you know parts of those things that we look at and we read in order to give a better I'm always shooting for an over level understanding of all sides. Right. You know, and sometimes it doesn't happen. Sometimes there I'm sure there will become times when we talk about something where there just won't be two sides. You know, it could be that old in history. Like when we did the Mongol Empire. Right. We could look at it kind of from the Lands that get conquered, but that's really not part of the story. Correct. In this case, you know, both sides are part of the story. So we try to give a nice balance. And that's why I brought stuff from NPR and the Gospel Coalition into what we were talking about. Exactly. And I don't say that I agree with either one or I disagree with either one because my personal beliefs for this podcast don't really matter. Right. Then the last one I wanted to bring is from the Henry Drummond, the, okay. the Clarence Darrow character. This is after he has put prosecuting attorney Brady, the okay. William Jennings Bryan character, on the stand as the Bible expert. And the judge is giving him a hard time, like questioning his line of questioning. And Brady says, Your Honor, I'm willing to sit here and endure Mr. Drummond's sneering in his disrespect, for he is pleading the case of the prosecution by his contempt for all that is holy. Drummond's like, I object, I object. And Brady answers, not the judge. Brady has hijacked, pretty much hijacked the trial at this point. Says, on what grounds? Is it possible that something is holy to the celebrated agnostic? And Drummond says, yes. Now, remember, this is an attorney mm -hmm. examining a witness. He's supposed to be asking questions and allowing the witness to answer. Correct. Earlier in the play, the Drummond character objects to Brady pontificating when he's questioning a witness. He asks the witness a question, which is a, a boy from the classroom, 
the witness gives like a three-word answer, and then Brady goes on for a whole page addressing the jury. Okay. Drummond objects. The judge says, overruled. So, and Drummond says, the individual human mind, and he's answering, this is what is holy to me. In a child's power to master the multiplication table, there's more sanctity than in all your shouted amens, holy holies, and hosannas. An idea is a greater monument than a cathedral. And the advance of man's knowledge is more of a miracle than any sticks turned to snakes or the parting of waters. But are we now to halt the march of progress because Mr. Brady frightens us with a fable? Gentlemen of the jury, progress has never been a bargain. You've got to pay for it. Sometimes I think there's a man behind a counter who says, all right, you can have a telephone, but you'll have to give up privacy, the charm of distance. Madam, you may vote, but at a price. You lose the right to retreat behind a powder puff or a petticoat. Mister, you may conquer the air, but the birds will lose their wonder and the clouds will smell of gasoline. Darwin moved us forward to a hilltop where we could look back and see the way from which we came. But for this view, this insight, this knowledge, we must abandon our faith in the pleasant poetry of Genesis. And Brady interrupts him. We must not abandon faith. Faith is the important thing. And then Drummond says, then why did God plague us with the power to think? Mr. Brady, why do you deny the one faculty which lifts man above all other creatures on the earth, the power of his brain to reason? What other merit have we? The elephant is larger, the horse is stronger and swifter, the butterfly more beautiful, the mosquito more prolific, even the simple sponge is more durable. Or does a sponge think? And Brady says, I don't know. I'm a man, not a sponge. <laughs> so, so a little humor in there. Yes. Now, another fictional element that they introduced into the play. We, we mentioned that William Jennings Bryan did indeed pass away shortly after the play. Mm -hmm. What the play does is it actually has him collapsing on the stand and passing away. Essentially, he, he lapses into an unresponsive state and dies shortly after. Right, right. So they, they so, take that and they kind of just bring it up a couple days. Right. May, obviously to make it more dramatic. Right. And, and you know the thing, you read that, that introduction to the to the show, and I wonder how many people think that this has a lot of basis in the in the Scopes Monkey trial because they never read that. Or it's omitted from other printings or things like that. You know right. I, I find a lot of times that when I read a book, I don't tend to read the acknowledgments and the introduction and I don't know, you probably do. You're, I do. You're, I'm you're, weird that way. Yeah, you're one of those guys. My <laughs> wife does it too. She'll read all that stuff. And I'm just like, you, you know, now sometimes the introduction will be a backstory and that's a little different. But if it's just like, this is why I wrote the I'm like, eh. you know, that's just the way I read though. But I don't know. I think, uh, I think we've brought this one around pretty well. What do you think? Pretty much. I mean, I, I loved the play. If I ever get into a position where I'm going to produce a drama, mm -hmm. this is on my short list, along with uh, Neil Simon's The Good Doctor. Okay. Well, um, I'll play the fat guy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, what? I, but what I love about this, and it, it's in that introduction, it, could, it was 1925 when the actual events took right. place. It could be today or tomorrow. The, these, and not just about the teaching of evolution, but the way certain elements of society still demonize other elements that they disagree with. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it's not just evolution. Right. It, it's so many different things, but maybe we'll leave that for another episode. That would be good. All right. Well, I want to thank everybody for tuning in. And um, 
as always, you know, if you like the uh, if you like the show, please go ahead and share it for us. We do put it out on Facebook and G Plus, but you know, anywhere you can share it, even to your own even to your own feeds, that gets to people that we don't get to. So if you want to uh, contact us, you can do so. You can find us on uh, email at want to hear something interesting at gmail.com. You can drop us a line there. Or if you're more into that social media stuff, you can find us at POI Network or at Want to Hear Something Interesting on Facebook. Other than that, I want to thank you all for listening, and we will talk to you next month. See you then. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at POI Game Studio.